Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Anuvab Paul. The New York Times calls Anuvab India's most intelligent comedian. The Times of India calls him one of India's top 10 comedians. His work has been featured on the BBC, Time Magazine, CNN, and other global media. He's a screenwriter of three well-known Bollywood films, including The Loins of Pujab Present, and the author of four best-selling novels, including the nonfiction book on the Bollywood movie, The Disco Dancer. His stand-up performance of Empire is part of the permanent collection of Victorian Albert Museum in London. Anavab and Kunal Roy Kapar host one of Spotify's most popular podcasts called Our Last Week, where the hosts answer emails about conundrums. We dig into Anavab's journey into comedy and writing, including his introduction to American cultural icons waiting for Anavab when he attended college in Ohio, and the influence of the mockumentary genre. We discuss the greatness that is the 80s Bollywood cult classic Disco Dancer, and the struggles of those confronting guitar phobia. If you haven't had a chance, please check out the movie Disco Dancer. It's the funniest movie I've seen in a long time. But be warned, the director believes it's a serious film. Before I'd hit record, Anavab and I were discussing his connection to Iowa, where he lived in the States and was invited to a Diwali celebration in Clive, Iowa. It was an honor having Anavab join me on the show and coordinating a 12 and a half hour time zone difference to make this episode happen. I thank him for sharing his time, insights, and for introducing me to Disco Dancer. I also need to thank Dave Hill and the Dave Hill Good Time Hour team for bringing Disco Dancer to the spotlight and introducing me to Anavab. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Um, oh, and I don't know if you can see this, but this arrived via the Dave Hill shop <laughs> yesterday. So I, I had to put that on for the for the podcast. I'm, I'm incredibly touched. You know, it, this has been very cathartic for me to have uh, Dave Hill, uh, the American comedian, for context to your listeners. I met uh, when we did a show together in Glasgow. And I immediately took to him as a person because he's such a funny human being, um, regardless of the fact that he's a comedian. Because, you know, as comedians, we work with a lot of comedians. And as individuals, we may have a very different sense of humor. We may be very different people. Indeed, I've worked with a lot of artists who, who are quite serious as people, yeah. but incredibly funny in the material they perform. Um, Dave and I started having a laugh as people. Uh, over the things we brought with and I was I loved the fact that he had a fondness for all the idiosyncratic things that I like in India um, really odd things that you know uh, in, in India it's seen as commonplace or average or um, you know like an old movie that right. like Disco Dancer that some people you know thought was tacky at the time or silly or just a flop film um, which I thought was a work of genius. 
And for years, I was just, even when I was in college in the United States, hoping to at least get through to some people um, to see the universal genius of the screenplay. And for about 35 years of my life, you know, people have said, yeah, it's fine. It's, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and then I met Dave, and then this podcast was finally sort of like um, a validation of sort of 35 years of what I believed in among people in another part of the world. And I'm really touched um, because, you know, the, the people are now buying the Jimmy Jimmy t-shirt, which is the name of the lead character from the movie. Um, the other day, someone sent me a message saying, I want to be the murderer of disco dancers, who is a character in the movie who murders only disco dancers, a niche, niche crime that he commits. And, and I, I was like, thank you. You know, it, it felt like, you know, how you're the only person thinking you're going mad, thinking this is very funny. And then this podcast happens and people, and I thought people in America would find this very funny, uh, but it took all these years to connect with those people. So I'm very thankful to Dave and, and thank you for wearing the t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. And uh, just backing up a second too, for me, uh, yeah, my introduction to you was actually through uh, Dave Hill, one of the... Uh, um, kind of pandemic comedy shows that uh, that you did and yeah and then fell in love with disco dancer so it's an absolute honor to have you here uh, Anavab if you don't mind for our listeners can you tell us a little bit about yourself yeah I'm um, an Indian scriptwriter and comedian I uh, was born in Calcutta India on, which is in the eastern side of the country I did my schooling in India and then I went to college in the United States. I spent four years in Columbus, Ohio, uh, studying uh, ma accountancy and dramatic writing, a combination of majors they've never had before and never had since, because I think they realized that this, this could produce a lethal, not even entirely sane combination in a human being. Um, and I, I, I love my time in small liberal arts school. Um, I had never lived away from India and I ended up in a small town in the U.S. And the people were great. It was There was no way for me to be able to study two so different things in any other country in the world. Um, in India, if you end up in higher education, you have to make a commitment. Like you want to be a scriptwriter, that's fine. You go to the National School of Drama or you study English literature, you know, or you become an accountant. Like you study accountancy and become a chartered accountant. You go down that path. Uh, in most countries of the world, they tell you, decide pretty early what you want to do with your life, right? Uh, America was the only place in the world that were kind enough to say, you're 17, you don't know anything. What do you know? You're an idiot. You know, <laughs> you barely put your clothes on, you know, at this age. So why don't you come here and do this liberal arts thing and figure out who you are as a human being? And I, I love that idea of the liberal arts education. And they let me do that, which is crazy. I mean, on one side, I was developing a full-length play. And on the other side, I had a degree where I was studying for the CPA. Like, it's just not... Uh, I don't know which normal circumstance would allow you to combine those two things. Um, and then I ended up uh, having a job as a business journalist for a long time. Um, I lived in Chicago, uh, first working as an intern at the Federal Reserve in Chicago. And from there, I got a job in New York um, in business finance, writing about business finance. But by night, I would write plays. 
um, and I had a few of them staged. I was lucky to have a few people in because it was New York City to see those plays. Um, I ended up writing a film um, uh, called Loins of Punjab Presents, uh, which ended up being a bit of a success uh, in the independent sort of circuit in the United States and also did quite well in India. And then that's when I moved back to India with the director of the film. And we thought we'd make these small independent movies essentially aimed very much at the US market because we were both, uh, you know, our training uh, was at, in the United States. And I also managed to do a year at Juilliard as a scriptwriter. So we were very much, you know, the, the humor that influenced us was very much, you know, Christopher Guest, um, that kind of, you know, yep. waiting for Captain. The mockumentary was very influential in most things that we ended up writing. Um, and also, I didn't know a lot of stuff, you know, like I, till I got to the United States, I didn't know Three's Company or I didn't know, uh, <laughs> you know, it's... It, These it, big it, cultural it's gems waiting for you. <laughs> exactly, because because uh, Cheers, like for example, I didn't know, I, I had no context of... Because when Indian television opened up to American market, like when it, it was sort of uh, liberalized, because till then we were quite socialist and quite closed as a country, we got stuff like New Heart. Uh, we got uh, a lot of that, Remington Steel. We used to get some of that. Um, so I, I, I got, by the time I ended up going to college, so throughout the 80s, we had no American television. In, I didn't grow up with any. This generation has everything. It has Netflix, yeah. Amazon. We used to get bits and pieces. So when I got to America, um, people were like, well, have you heard of this? Because I'd be in the theater program and they'd always be referring to stuff. And I was like, I have no idea who that is. You know, they're like, do you know who Fonz is from this movie? I was like, I don't know. Ferris Bueller, I had no idea. We'd never seen it. That was not a thing. Um, so it was a very quick learning curve. America also taught me Monty Python because we used to get uh, Faulty Towers, but we never got the scale of Monty Python, like what it was, right? Uh, that kind of thing. And also, um, you know, I didn't really know uh, people like Richard Pryor, for example, like that kind of stand up never came to India. Um, uh, Seinfeld we used to get, Friends we used to get, or we had a brief idea of what it was. Uh, so it was patchwork. So basically it ended up, you know, being a, a, a very steep learning curve. Um, who's that great American comedian passed away, older man, talked about God a lot. Um, he had HBO specials. Uh, I'm getting Car old. George uh, Carlin? Thank you. Uh, so George Carlin was a big discovery for me. Um, because at Chris Rock and like just the yeah. idea that you could say anything. I came from a culture where you had to be very careful, right? Like, because we live with enjoying family. So it's very careful of what you can say. Government is quite strict. So I just went to a country where like, can you just say anything? Can you just write anything? And they're like, yeah, I said, this is a great country. You could just, people just ask you what your opinion is. Yeah, this is excellent. My opinions are nonsensical. It doesn't matter. They'll let you do it. So I loved America from that perspective. And um, so in college, you know, because I was in a writing program, I came across David Mamet, uh, Eugene O'Neill, stuff that, yeah. again, I had no access to in India. And I just thought, oh, you know, it'd be interesting to maybe, the only perspective I can bring is that I have these international stories, but I'd love to write them in the context of 
you know, American dramatists and, and that sort of Western thing. So that's what led to our first film, which was a, a mockumentary about a bunch of Indians taking part in Edison, New Jersey, uh, a bunch of people of Indian origin in a, in a singing contest, uh, uh, sort of as a, as a ripoff of American Idol. Um, and it's sponsored by a guy that owns a pork loin company and it's called The Loins of Punjab Presents. And then you follow the seven contestants. Um, and we did, that was our first movie. And then we followed that up with the second one, by which time we'd moved back to Mumbai. Sorry, please tell me if I'm rambling. Oh, this is, this is great. Um, and the second thing I ended up doing was uh, George W. Bush, if anyone still remembers him, visited <laughs> India in 2008. It was uh, one of the first presidential visits uh, in a long, long time because ties were really improving between India and the US. And he, one of the things he wanted to do in his three-day stay was find a young Indian person under 30 because uh, at the time, and it's still true, India and China had the youngest populations in the world. And this was supposed to be the future of the world. Like uh, outsourcing was happening in India. India was in the news. 500 million people under the age of 30. So one of the things that the US uh, president sort of requested was whether he could shake hands with a young Indian person who was uh, Indian in spirit, but American in values. And uh, the US consulate in Mumbai had a contest to find this person. Um, in reality, I think they, they didn't really have a contest. They selected from people who were like university, like, right. you know, high grade people who were also like athletic awards winners. And, you know, they picked like people they knew. But we did a mock documentary called The President is Coming, again, on that whole Christopher Guest sort of format. Um, try figured what if there was a real context uh, to, you know, what if there was a physical round? And, you know, what if there were several rounds that they had to go through to be worthy to shake hands with George W. So that became our second film. And then... Um, yeah, so that kind of sort of led my career sort of in India quite a bit. But I was always interested. I was always interested in telling Indian stories, primarily for an American audience, because that's, you know, where all my learning was, but also for an international audience. Like, I always wanted to find quirky things in India uh, because there was we already had Bollywood. Right. So, and it has great writers and it, it's its own thing and it's feeding to a billion people and I didn't think I could do anything new in that environment because those stories were being told. Um, so, but I thought, you know, what it'd be lovely to do Christopher Guest type documentaries about India for for your audience, you know, where you know I because I saw a lot of interest in my in my college town about interesting stories about India and things like that. So, um, when the Comedy Store of England opened in Mumbai in 2010 was when I began my stand-up career, completely accidentally. I had gone there to write an article about the comedy store. And they said, no, no, we're not going to give you an interview. We need you to perform because there's a shortage of people who have auditioned and we want to open this club. And that's where I began my stand-up career. And Don Ward, who's now, I think, 90, uh, was holding the auditions. And I ended up spending about three or four years of my life working with a lot of British comics because the business model was they would fly them down to Mumbai and they'd do a weekend with British comics with a couple of Indian comedians thrown in. Um, so I got to learn a lot about British comedy and them sort of going through the system. Um, and that's what sort of took me to the United Kingdom, which is where I started doing um, 
like things like the bugle because i had a chance to meet andy right. salts yeah. he came to india and we toured together um and we became friends and then i ended up doing some more stand up in the uk so yeah that's broadly sort of the journey as i continue to do writing for amazon etc in india um i still continue to live in mumbai but um and i've lived here since 2005 but yeah the the interest has always been to find things in india that be appealing to an audience in iowa you know of professors and podcasters you know so right. that's always been um, yeah. <laughs> Well, th- thank you. I want a, a couple connections. Um, just so you know, when I started my undergrad, I started off as a double major as pre-dentistry and broadcast and film. <laughs> wow. Because I wasn't sure if I wanted to do filmmaking or if I wanted to be an orthodontist. Ended up not doing either. But uh, that was that was the start of what brought me into, into university. That's incredible. Wow. And then I lived in Minneapolis uh, after grad school and... Uh, while I was there, uh, helped manage an independent theater company. So uh, I've I've always thought that uh, the behind the scenes drama of small failing independent theater companies could be a great Christopher Guest kind of movie. Ultimate, it would be the <laughs> it would be a fantastic story. Most of the people that I graduated with still work in uh, you know for regional theater companies. Like I think they're quite senior now, either as artistic yeah. directors or writers or whatever, and. That's been a world that I've always loved. And I think Guffman had a bit of that. I mean, because, I mean, we're in a small town, but everybody takes the job very seriously. You know, like, like everyone sort of feels like they're about to stage something where the world is going to change. <laughs> you know? and, and that's true for all sort of intellectual endeavors. And I, I found that sort of lovely, the camaraderie and the friendship and the, the rivalries and the fights and, you know, um, uh, my mother does these uh, small sort of uh, kind of like uh, variety musical programs which she directs and she's 71 and she does it with another lady who's 70 and she lives in Calcutta and they do it in Bengali and they do sort of uh, music and drama and a bit of history and last night she was saying you know the other lady that I'm co-directing with she's such a terrible director she always says she has arthritis and never shows up for rehearsal. And I was like, that's very Goffman-esque. But you know, like, you know, I, but she takes it very seriously. She's like, this is a professional production. You know, what are people gonna think? You know, the, what is the world gonna think of us? And, you know, it's so sweet because it's gonna be like 60 people watching this. But but to my mom, it's the it's the whole world, right? So um, it's, I love, I love that sort of sense of community. Um, and the stories that that sort of go behind it, yes. um, but just to ask, Minnesota has also some great theaters, right? It has the yeah. Guthrie. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the the Guthrie is a great one up there. We, um, as an independent theater company, we didn't have a uh, a home stage, uh, so we would ha- have to rent stages. And um, one of one of my favorite places that we'd have productions was there's an old bowling alley that has a uh, basically a burlesque theater next to it. And uh, one of the struggles right, is, can we make money? And what's, what's our artistic vision? And we would do, we'd do comedies uh, around the holidays, winter holidays. And uh, it was, it was a great environment because they could, they'd also serve uh, drinks there. Uh, but uh, one time we were having a, uh, 
uh, a, a drama there. So this theater, the Bright Lake Bowl Theater, we we did well and we didn't lose money. That's that was our <laughs> our gauge of success. If we didn't lose money, incredible and, success, yeah. And the uh, but the the old the bowling alley. You walk through the bowling alley to get there, and uh, for a, a very dramatic reveal when in the it, somebody got a strike in the bowling alley, and the everybody erupts like cheering. And it was based, somebody confessed that they had been raped and the noise was cheering. So the artistic director was like, never again, we can't hold dramas <laughs> here. So that was, that was part of our struggle. <laughs> That's incredible. Wow. That is incredible. You know, Edinburgh Festival, they, they, because they have so many performers in so many venues, they sometimes have these very non-conventional performance spaces. And uh, my, I've, I was very fortunate. The very first time I performed at Edinburgh, I was in a shipping container. Uh, it was basically like uh, there's the main building and adjacent to it. So the main building was called the Pleasance, which is a university which has many auditorium for big performances. And then next to it, there was like a, a, a shipping container that's basically, you know, I guess they take tea or steel pipes or anything to ship across the world. And it's uh, it's got no ventilation, right? Shipping container, right? It's just for stuff. But they made a door and they made it like a performance venue with seats, etc. And uh, what they do is these young volunteers that were meant to run the space realize very quickly that they need oxygen in there because otherwise 60 people are going to die in the middle of a performance. So uh, I backstage and the lady um, who was up before me, because it was a quick turnaround, it was one hour, you know, performers in, out, in, out, right? So she had the five o'clock and the six o'clock and she's in there and she's talking about the story about being kidnapped in Iraq and this horrible story of like how she was a captive and she couldn't get out and imprisonment and all that. And then I hear this like sound, it sounds like an explosion. And what's happened is that one of those venue managers have decided to like get one of those air conditioning, you know, like, pipes it's like yeah. i don't know what they call it like a it's like a pipe it's just like a blower of air <laughs> it looks like a like a snakeish sort of thing right it, it's a, and decided to like use that little gap in the container to kind of slide that in because i guess people were sweating and feeling like they'd complain so she's like you know and then i was in baghdad <laughs> she says blast of air and she didn't know what to do it was like silent and then Somebody in the audience shouts, that's just the air conditioning. And like, it became a thing. Like as the performance had to wait for two weeks to adjust, get their little dose of air conditioning. And then she had to go back to the trauma bit. Oh, so I want to dig in a little bit uh, too, because we, uh, I was lucky enough to do the, um, uh, when the Dave Hill Good Time Hour had the community viewing of Disco Dancer. So I'd, I'd watched it before. Right. Uh, but just sh shortly before that, but then, and then we got to do uh, Q and a uh, with you and Shnali. Yeah. Uh, but kind of curious in, in your kind of that arc and you describe like 35 years of being with this movie and you also wrote a book about it. Uh, but for, for listeners that don't know, um, how would you, how would you describe the movie and your love of it to, to people in middle America? So, you know, um, <laughs> when I was a kid, my mother had a little um, 
apartment, like a little shed area under our house, which was unused. So she decided that she'd be entrepreneurial about it and started a video cassette library. This was 1983, what I want. And she decided she wants to be an entrepreneur and her friend has a flower shop. So she's going to start a video cassette library. And, and she did. And uh, they, we used to have one section for Indian movies and one section for English movies. And obviously, you know, this is a very tiny operation. So who's going to manage, like, you know, when my parents went out for dinner or whatever, who's going to manage this thing? Their only son, you know, who's got nothing else to do. You know, he's going to be up kind of like there and we'd have a register and people would take films out. And I'd have to write in the book, you know, whatever sort of movies they took out. And uh, so it was like a thing, you know, it was an operation and people would come and take movies, etc. And and it was all sorts of, it's in the 80s. So people would say, you know, the print is really bad and I couldn't watch this and, you know, I'm not paying for this and all that would happen. But the thing, the movie that got rented a lot, uh, there were three films that got rented a lot. Clint Eastwood's Sudden Impact, that got rented a lot. Um, a movie called Where Eagles Dare got rented a lot. I think it had years later, I think it had, again, it was Clint Eastwood. I think Richard Burton was in it. It was in World War II. And the third, and so, I was like, I have to watch these movies because lots of people are watching them. I'm eight, right? Yeah. And there was a little TV and a VCR. So, and the third movie that I got rented a lot was Disco Dancer. And I, I was a huge fan of movies that I'd seen. So I pretty much knew the arc of any 1980s Bollywood film, which was it would be a, a, a poor guy. You know, he's been wronged in some way by like a bad guy. And the bad guy's always rich. And he was always villainous and his, his lifestyle was very westernized. So he'd have suits and he'd drink and drinking was always bad. And he'd, he'd drink and he'd smoke and he'd have like he'd be having dinner in a revolving restaurant. That was always a thing in the 80s. The restaurant had to revolve and he'd be hanging out like he'd have friends in Singapore. Like these were all bad things. And then the good guy was usually like someone who's been wronged. His father was like a taxi driver or like a house help of some kind and he was wronged and beaten and then this guy would like take revenge in some way usually by becoming a policeman and then he'd seek revenge on the bad guys. Disco Dancer had all those elements, right? Uh, it had this poor guy who wants to take revenge. But the great thing about it is the whole thing is done through disco dancing. So the villain is a disco dancer and the good guy is also poor and he's got that all those tropes. He's poor, he's a slum boy. He's criticized, horrible things happen to him in the slum, but he seeks revenge by out disco dancing the villains, disco dancing family. And I said, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. It has all the elements of 80s socialism, but through disco dancing, like why isn't anyone seeing the genius of this? Um, I think around the time Saturday Night Fever had come out. So I guess the, the director couldn't directly steal Saturday Night Fever. Also, he had to put it in an Indian context. So he did this like, this entire, like, you know, angry young man, rags to riches story, but through disco dancing. So even in the film, the final scene, usually in a Bollywood film, the final scene would be the good guy, the hero, the non-drinker, beating up the westernized villain, right? In a revolving restaurant, right? And like literally that's <laughs> like beating up. In this case, the final is a dance-off. It's a, it's a, it's a dance-off where guns come out. And I'm like, this is brilliant. Like even at eight, I couldn't quite understand like all the genius elements that I, I understood much later in life. But even at eight, I was like, there's something going on here. This is so good. Um, it it, it and, is. It's so, it's so good. And I have to tell you that I, I had to get in touch with, because 
<clears throat> right? It was was my introduction was because Dave recommended it, right? And so, yeah. yeah. But while I'm watching it, I sent him a couple messages because it was this thing keeps getting better and better. It's more, it's like more absurd. And then even like a half hour in, I'm like, oh, the movie's probably peaked here. But no, then something else happens (laughs) and it becomes just zanier and more incredible. And, uh, and I got to say that prior to this movie, I never had guitar phobia in my, uh, kind of lexicon, and now I refer to guitar phobia quite often. It's a thing now. So this was, I think it was about, I hadn't seen, since 1984, since I had that experience with Disco Dancer, I hadn't had any relationship with the movie for about 20 years. So all this stuff that we talked about, America happened, you know, me learning about all these American comedic things happened. So I revisited Disco Dancer in 2008 or nine when my publisher said, do you want to write about a Bollywood film that's influenced you the most? And I said, I think Disco Dancer, but I don't know why. And then I rewatched it. And that's when I found, you know, the, the, how the hero was wronged was if your listeners don't know this, basically because his mother was electrocuted by a guitar. So the villain electrocutes a guitar he's about to perform in. By the way, he's a disco dancer who's also a guitarist. That's an important element here. (laughs) Um, And I think, I think Dave Hill also tried to find the guitar that the disco dancer plays to see if it's a real guitar. Um, and he seeks revenge. He has to seek revenge on the villains that killed his mother. But he can't, as you pointed out, Matt, because he has guitar phobia, which, as we all know, after COVID, is very well-known illness, where if you see a red guitar like the disco dancer does, he shouts, no, froths at the mouth and passes out which we've all suffered from at some point in our life. So again, these I realized in 2009 or eight or whatever, just before I wrote the book, the genius of like, you discovered it, like how it gets better and better. In 2009, I was like, yes, this is, this is now truly great. Like I couldn't grasp how great it was, I think when I was eight, but now I finally understand what these things were that I couldn't articulate. Um, and then I tried to tell a lot of people between 2010 and 11 about revisiting it and how great it was. And I wrote the book and I told B. Subhash who made it that he was a comedic genius. And of course he was upset and he tried to sort of sue me. And that's a whole different story. But right. um, <laughs> And he tried to have you arrested too, right? He did. He did. Yeah. He, uh, he, said, he said, I've defamed him and that I have said horrible things. And, and also that he was a serious person who made serious movies. And he even wrote an article in the Times of India titled Why I Am Serious or something. Like that was the title of it. Or Why I'm Not Funny or whatever. Because the book did reasonably well and then there was traction uh, among sort of the quote-unquote hipster generation that this was really funny. So the film had a life uh, after the book came out because people started laughing at sort of different elements. He was really upset with that. He was... uh, he called me up, middle of the night, he called me up and he was ranting. I mean, he was a 75-year-old man who wasn't <laughs> seeing any of this as funny. And this really upset me because it's like, you know, he's a comedic genius who made this movie, who left alone with enough financing would probably make three or four other great comedic movies. Um, his, he had this dream project, uh, uh, Disco Dancing in America, that was supposed to be the sequel. And again, you know, I, I, 
I really what I want to say is don't fight with me, man. Like I want to help you raise money for this movie and to leave you alone to do it as you want to. Um, he his the one film he did get made which didn't get enough publicity, and I wish more people got to see it is a film he made called Tarzan in Mumbai, um, which was a film where Tarzan is captured and brought to Mumbai uh, for display at a party. Uh, and uh, he falls in love and lots of things happen. But again- Is, is that a serious he, movie as well? It's very, according to him, it's a, it's a classic <laughs> civilizations film. And again, I tried to tell him that it's another great film. And he didn't want to talk to me because he thought I was making fun of him. But I, I really wasn't. You know, I really, I mean, yeah. you know, it's one of those relationships. One, one of the things that you had, dis- had discussed in a Q&A about the movie that I found fascinating, and, and you've provided a little bit more context, uh, almost like this Western hedonism kind of elements. But because I, I was fascinated that uh, the character names in the movie were all English names. So manager was yeah. David Brown. It's Jimmy. Yeah. Uh, but then just double check that that's kind of because they're, they're doing these things that wouldn't, wouldn't fit in Indian culture. That's what he said. And I, I don't know if that's entirely <laughs> true, but he seemed to believe um, there's a big thing in India, in Indian cinema. It's a phrase I love, uh, which people say it has to be accepted by the audience. Like, you know, how in America, a lot of people say, I don't give a shit who likes my movie. This is the story I want to tell, you know, like a lot of, you see, you know, yeah. I don't know, Scorsese or, you know, or all these art house people saying, all the great directors saying, you know, believe in your vision, believe in your story. Indian filmmakers, it's all a lot about being socially accepted. Like uh, act, actors would say, you know, I, they, this movie is a hit and the audience have accepted me. You know, there's some idea of like being embraced by an audience. So that's something apparently they keep in mind when writing stories. So I said, you know, why is... Why is this guy's name David Brown? Why is the disco dancer's name Jimmy? Jimmy's not a very common Indian name. Why does he even change it from Raju to Jimmy? And he said, you know, what if the audience, serious answer he gave me, he said, what if the audience didn't accept disco dancing as an Indian profession? That's why I thought if they had Christian names, um, maybe the audience would accept it more because disco dancing is not a regular profession. At which point I didn't want to interrupt him and say it's probably not a regular profession anywhere in the world. <laughs> I don't think I don't think you have a problem with just the Indian disco dance. And if you remember, no, they tried to unionize here in the late eighties and uh, it fell apart. <laughs> yeah, it didn't last. But and to harp his point, if you remember, he does have a scene very early on when the kid's name is Raju, he's born as Raju, he's a street urchin, disco dancer, and then obviously he's wronged and all the usual tropes, and he becomes this Western disco dancer. When he becomes Jimmy, he's all grown up. To show that he's Christian, there's a scene where he's alone in a room in front of a giant poster of Jesus saying, I think he's saying, Jesus, don't you love me dancing or something. Like those are the lines where he's dancing in front of a thing of Jesus. And I was like, why do you have that in there? And he said, no, we had to tell the audience that he's Christian. So I had to have him dance in front of Jesus, but I didn't get permission to shoot a disco dance sequence in a church. So I had to do it in the room. Which is a, a logical, logical problem any filmmaker would have. 
Yeah. Oh, and it is, I just, for anybody listening that hasn't seen it, it's such a delightful movie. And just like, for me, it was, it was all the things I loved about uh, bad films and I bad in a good way. Right. It was just like bad, bad films as a kid and in the, in like kind of a, a violent scary movie arc. Right. I don't know if you saw any trauma production movies when you were here. Uh, or have seen those, but like the Toxic Avenger, and they're almost like just so bad they're good, and um, so that's why I I'm super you know just fascinated with that uh, back and forth that you had with the director. Like you think he's a comedic genius, <laughs> he's irritated because this is a serious piece of art for him. I love it. Yeah, yeah, he was upset. I I you know like in my in the years I was in America, I got to see a bit of mystery science theater, and just oh. this idea of you know. <laughs> like taking bad alien films or zombie films and kind of watching it and mocking it, like it became a thing. Um, so I had some of that in mind when I saw Disco Dancer second time around in 2008. Right. But then it was so far ahead of mockery. Like, I mean, you didn't need to get together and point out the ridiculous things, you know? It was just, uh, uh, I mean, I also love the depictions of Western people in it. Uh, the The... The main villain is, of course, an Indian guy, but he his name is P.N. Oberoi. But he hires a henchman to murder the disco dancer. And it's made very clear early on that the henchman who's coming from London murders only disco dancers. There's riches and niches, that. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, he understands the niche he's working with. Um, um, and also, in the, I think in the finale... Um, it's very important for the disco dancer to win a foreign competition. So he takes part in the world disco dancing championships in Paris. Um, and I think the two rounds he has to compete with, I think they show the rounds. The first round is the disco dancing king and queen of Africa. And yeah. then it's the disco dancing king and queen of Paris. So it's, it's a continent. An city. entire continent and then a city. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I don't know who he's representing because he comes out and he's like, and the next contestant is Jimmy. So I don't know what, like, whether he's, he's representing India. I wasn't sure. Uh, some questions for you on, uh, on comedy. Uh, so I know CNN has described you as one of India's funniest. Uh, New York Times, India's most intelligent comedian. Uh, now, do you are you able to clip those out and put those on your mom's refrigerator to to show her that you've you've made a career in comedy? Yeah, parents love all this, you know. Parents get because you know, but if you've been doing this long enough, you know, it's just you're just focusing on the next gig or you know, right. telling stories about how the world is changing and how to incorporate that and stay relevant. But parents love this stuff, you know. It's uh, um, my my mom will sometimes like. If, say, for example, I do a podcast or an article or whatever, she'd be like, send me a cutout. Send me a, a thing. Like, send me a clip. Uh, and my dad's 81. He doesn't see very well. So sometimes when I will do a podcast, he'll be like, I want to listen to it. But your mom is not letting me listen to it or whatever. Like, so they, I was like, what do you mean not letting me listen? So I think that the, the sort of this, this notion of press coverage or memorabilia, that kind of thing, I think it's great for family or they get some validation that, that, you know, that he's not lying in a ditch somewhere. <laughs> right. um, what but yeah, it's an unconventional career, right? So, they, so they yeah. initially, 
the especially from my part of the world because it's you know if you come from my part of the world because what inherently because of the poverty and because of everything else people first assume that you get an education you get a job right so you know the biggest fear is you know you don't want to be begging on the streets like hundreds of millions of people so you want right. a home you want some stability etc it's that which in america i realized that you know those basic things what those basic things are taken care of young people think differently right they say what do i want to do in in uh, in life like you know what's going to make me most happy you know that was something i realized in american colleges whereas in india the first thought is you know how do i not end up on the street with one arm like that is the first thought right like what job will make sure of a right. monthly income right so and after yeah. that what do you do for fun you know so it's a it's always yeah so unconventional careers always get that sort of thing from parents one of the bits uh, that i've seen you do that i love was uh, talking about yoga when you had to go do yoga and also kind of the cultural import export relationship with being a colony and and uh, uh, with England, does a lot of your comedy involve kind of th- those those multiple perspectives? Because you've you've spent time in the states, you've spent time in London, and then obviously the colonized kind of history of India's relationship to England. I was just curious if that that's a common thread in some of your comedy. Yeah, like I have these pockets of influence that influence me very heavily. The British Empire is a big influence because I grew up in a city that. A lot of the architecture is still left behind by the British. Um, there is a sort of value, a silly, almost Monty Python-esque sort of value in English education and speaking English well, even though none of the population cares about that. Like they go about their business, but there's a certain class element in like being able to talk like this. You know? So <laughs> the climbing through society, which is all happening among brown people, which I found very funny and sort of a legacy of empire. So that aspect of like, how did the British do this to us and like control the mind to think speaking English and all things anglicized and Downton Abbey, like all of that, like is better and good, you know, like how did they do that? Like that was, that's always been a big influence in my life. Um, 70s and 80s Bollywood, that's the other aspect, it's been a big influence, you know, movies about smugglers and sharks and disco dancing and that kind of stuff, that whole genre. Uh, I mean, David and I have just touched the surface. He's been watching way more Bollywood and asked me some questions. And there are some great classics. There's another one where Dharmendra, uh, the, the film is called Operation Django. And I think he's a spy. He's like a James Bond type spy. And at one point he fights like a, ma- a child of a man and a bear <laughs> somewhere on his travels and stuff. And then that, but that man bear child speaks perfect English. So then they end up conversing at the end of the fight. No one really wins. So like 80s Bollywood gets some great, great stuff. Great stuff. Um, there's there's one series that we did, like a James Bond ripoff, starring the same actor that did Disco Dancer. Um, and I'm forgetting the name of it, but basically it was supposed to be like a James Bond character. Um, gosh, I don't know why I'm losing my mind right now, but... Uh, in one of the movies, he's supposed to uh, get all of the corruption money that's sitting in Swiss bank accounts. So he's supposed to fly to Switzerland and like get corruption money that Indian politicians have stored away uh, in uh, a Gunmaster G9. Sorry, that's the name of the character, Gunmaster G9. Uh, he was India's James Bond. Same guy, Disco Dancer guy plays him. Mithun, he was a big star those years. Um, 
and Grandmaster Gina and goes to Switzerland and comes back. And in the scene, he he goes to the office of like the CBI, which is like the India's FBI, and he puts down the briefcase. And on the briefcase, it says Swiss bank account. <laughs> it's like it's a thing. It's a physical thing. He's got it. He's got it. It's a thing. Uh, so that era was a huge influence on stuff I wrote. So Empire has been a big influence. Old Bollywood is big influence. And my third big influence was that kind of Midwestern sort of very gentle comedy. Because I, I lived in America the years when like Dave Matthews was big, Rusted Root was big. Um, I lived in a, in a town where my college town had a very big fraternity house influence. Um, Letterman, that kind of humor. Conan to some extent. Um, so a lot of stuff I see sometimes now in the comedy of Zach Galifianakis and to some extent Luke Wilson, Owen Wilson, you know, they do some yeah. of the stuff. Movies of Wes Anderson. So that world was also another big influence. Uh, that sort of quirky, very kind of, I'm watching a bit of Shit's Creek now um, and with Eugene Levy and his son and it has a bit of that feel to it. So that's been the other very big influence, especially like learning mockumentaries, arrested development, that world. So, um, so these have always been the three big influences. Thank you. And in uh, kind of in pandemic, I've, I got to see you do a set with, I think, uh, Nowhere Comedy Club. But uh, how are you staying active during uh, pandemic? Well, we're doing sh um, Zoom shows have been quite active. Uh, I do a podcast on Spotify with Kunal Rai Kapoor, who's a very well-known Bollywood actor. And uh, the podcast is called Our Last Week. And what we do is basically talk about really, really tiny, sort of almost Seinfeldian problems of everyday India. And, uh, and then our listeners write into us and we try to solve those conundrums. Um, so we've been doing that on Spotify. And that's called Our Last Week. And we've been doing it every week. We've done about 100 shows of that. Um, and interestingly, I don't know how this is going to go, but the Indian winter is quite, it's like your summer, right? Um, so the virus cases in Mumbai, where I live, are down, are significantly down. It was really bad here in August and September when it was okay in the West. But now the cases have really gone down. So they're opening live shows. As in this Thursday, I'll be doing my first live show in front of an audience. So, um, I mean, if you don't hear from me the week after, you know what's happened. Um, I don't know how it's going to go, but uh, but live comedy is starting here. And so, yeah, that's interesting. Oh, that's great. Uh, one one thing I wanted to share with you, to, uh, a really good friend of mine, uh, we, were, we were close friends in high school, went to undergrad together and actually both ended up back in Iowa City. And he's he's a genetics researcher. And years ago, he was doing research in inherited eye diseases. And uh, there was a clinic in Mumbai that would send people over to the University of Iowa to see how our lab and clinic was, was doing this work here. And uh, my friend jokingly, and this was this is probably late 90s, uh, uh, jokingly said, uh, it would probably be cheaper for me just to go over there and just show them how we run our lab. And so they, they took him up on the offer. He went and uh, he had, he had a great experience. He was telling me about so many like really cool things that, that he saw. Uh, but one thing was uh, there was another guy from the States that came with him and 
when they got off the train in Mumbai, uh, the his 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 travel partner set his bags down to like to stretch, and as soon as he looked back, his bags were gone, and yeah. He's, was just oh, and he was just overwhelmed by the volume of people, and like went to their wherever they were staying at the clinic and never left the room. He he just like, was shell shocked, and and then my friends running around telling me like all the different discoveries he had, like with street food and and at night and where he could get like uh, tailors to make shirts for him, and, and then he'd also told me yeah. they went to a conference in Bengal, like near the Bay of Bengal. There was a. It, he said he learned the difference between uh, uh, like a standard ticket and first class ticket on a train. He said in U.S. dollars, it was like maybe a dollar difference. <laughs> but yeah. like that yeah. Midwestern mentality is I can't spend. I can't be that frivolous and buy a first class ticket. So he said yeah. there were there were some interesting lessons there, but he he loved it. But I just thought, you know, since you've spent time in the Midwest and just from small town to Mumbai, somebody just completely overwhelmed right away by the amount of people. Well, you know, it's I, 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 some of my college friends still visit, um, you know, and many over the years have come and stayed with me here. Uh, my dear friend who's now in genetics in Boston lived in Mumbai, my house when he was single. Now he's married with two kids for about four or five months. And it takes a certain kind of mindset, like either you love it or it drives you crazy, right? Like, um, I mean, the guy who put his suitcases down, he probably wasn't even robbed. Like it was like half a million people they're probably trying to get off the train. You know, it's like, right. they were just yeah. kicked aside. Walk of humans. I, you know, I remember when I moved back, I thought, you know, I've taken trains in New York City rush hour. How bad can this be? And I got on a Mumbai local, and basically at rush hour, what happens is there are no doors now. Now they've got air conditioned trains. This is two thousand five. So, like, about some five hundred people get off from this side. And the commuters already on the train would just get pushed to the out of the platform. So then you wait for the next train. So that stuff is great. It's fabulous. <laughs> oh, Anavab, thank you so much for joining me on the, the podcast today. This was, uh, it was just an honor to have you here. And I want to thank you so much for introducing me to uh, Disco Dancer. It has been uh, a great joy of mine. And I've, I've loved your, your comedy and podcasts just getting recently introduced to you. So if you do make it back to the States, please try to get to uh, Iowa City. Would love to, I'd love to have you hang out here. It's been an honor. It's thank you for having me. But I think what, what is most touching for me is that, you know, from all those years back in the 1980s, I was able to reach someone on the other side of the world with Disco Dancer. Like, you know, like, I feel like what is the meaning of art if like two people can't connect on the same piece of something, you know, like, uh, like, I'm just glad you enjoyed that. You know, every other thing is fine, you know, with, yeah. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here. <laughs>